You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with my two great friends. And there's something with you, Stephen. By the way, you just look really good today. I don't know if you put on like a. I don't know if you put on like a button-down shirt. You normally don't, or what? I don't. I don't something's different. Yeah, I got all dressed What's up different? for you guys. Come on, it's the lighting. <laughs> The the lighting stuff. Yeah, it I is. See. Yeah, a, he's got a he's got a little bit of a glow. <laughs> he's got a he's got a youth filter on, <laughs> and he looks great. So that's Dr. Stephen yeah. Kissler. He looks like he's twelve. <laughs> he does. Not much has changed. And he is an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health. And we got Dr. Mark Kissler for the third week in a row. So this literally is the biggest miracle. I think that's a record. Yeah, this is a record. This is phenomenal. So Dr. Mark is in the house. He's with us. Uh, doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. And we're here to talk all things COVID. So let's get going. Before we do that, just uh, a couple things. We love reviews. We haven't had one, like a wordy one, since like February 16th. So we love wordy ones. So <laughs> if you want to go out there and give a wordy one, that'd be great. But you know, give the star that's worthy, that you think it's worth. We love that stuff. If you want to support us, we'd greatly appreciate that. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month goes a long way. And uh, one time gifts, pay, uh, PayPal, Venmo, on the show notes. I think that's all the big ticket items. Oh, totally random. Mark, Stephen, get ready to drop an episode and living the real. I think we should do this for the pandemic. I've been reflecting on the six or seven things I've learned from the pandemic, just that's bigger than the mm -hmm. pandemic and just reflecting on how it's changing yep. my life and how it's still, it mm -hmm. still hasn't quite landed. So if you guys are interested, go to livingthereal.com. Mm -hmm. You can sign up uh, to join, subscribe to my podcast, but it'll be releasing soon. But it's been a, it was a really been fun reflection, going deep and seeing some of the things. Most of it is still unraveling, as you could probably imagine. But I think we need to add that to our episode in the future as well. Okay, so let's get going. First of all, there's big news. I can barely get out of my house, guys. So... <laughs> I know that snow is incredible. I don't know, St Stephen. We got oh. probably two feet at my house. Good gracious. Whoa! <laughs> you beat us. That's crazy, Mark. I'm guessing we got like 16 or 18 inches. Yeah, we have drifts. <clears throat> yeah, we easily have drifts that are bigger than my children in the back. <laughs> have you so have you excited. done a child count lately? <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Actually, that drift is, yeah. <laughs> that drift is not yeah. a natural drift. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. No, it's big. Yeah. It's so big. we had a lot of snow and I was so excited that like a month ago on Facebook and Facebook is literally the magisterium of reality. It's all truth. And I saw that spring is supposed to come early in Colorado. And I was so excited. March was a month and now we're slammed with this. So I don't think it's coming that early. I mean, this, so, this is Colorado spring. That's it. That's true. That's true. That's so true. I've, I've lost all trust in Facebook now, as if I didn't. Before. <laughs> good. Good. I'm glad that's the straw that broke. Okay. We've got lots to chat about because we mentioned, I think last week, we really want to focus on the vaccine. I have, a, I have a few questions that are a little random here and we're going to start those in a second, but just want to frame this for everybody that we really want to frame this as being vaccine day, talking about it because I'm getting a lot of questions more and more and more because of course, as the phases roll out, people are available. It's one thing to be like, what's well, the healthcare system? It's going to be a long while, but now it's starting to really expedite. And so now the question is, do I get it? Do I not get it? Do I wait? And so there's just a lot of been put a pressure and a lot of questions coming my way. So this is about trying to help you guys who are listening to get some good, well-balanced perspective of whether you should take it, how safe it is, all those kind of things. But before we get in there, let's talk about a few questions. Oh, Mark, do you have something? Yeah, I just wanted to reflect on that. I've been getting a lot of questions too recently about the vaccine. And I think there's this funny way that it sort of concentrates a lot of our, a lot of the feelings that we've had around the whole pandemic in this moment of decision. And so all of a sudden now, like the pandemic has been something that's happened to us yeah. for a year. Yeah. And this in certain ways is this weird way that we're acting into that now and making a choice. Yep. And then it, if funny ways that kind of a lot of the intensity of our feelings about the the whole pandemic have been concentrated on this moment, getting the vaccine, whether they're people are elated and just like super, super excited to get it or more hesitant or they want to get it. But there's just like complexity around that, which is super understandable yeah. because there's just been so much, I think, going. On. So I think it's interesting the way that the vaccine is bringing out some aspects of sort of our whole coping process that maybe have been a little bit more subterranean mm -hmm. up until now. But I've definitely seen that in the, just in like my own self and in, in interactions with folks as they're making this decision about whether or not to get mm -hmm. it. Yep, absolutely. And that's just the first layer, right? Then the second layer is 
I've seen in the Atlantic is that once you get it, there's a whole other set of like realities of people are being secret about it and not sharing it because of tons of reasons. Number one, it's like a scarlet letter, right? Because it's one thing, it, it may convey a pre, some kind of condition that you have that you don't want people to know. And that's what made you slated for the tier. You don't want people to know that. Or maybe you just don't want to go to work. And so you don't want people to know you got, right. the, you got the vaccine. Or maybe you don't want to be shamed. Yeah. Because you might look like a a perfectly healthy person in their 20s or 30s, and then you're just going to be ridiculed. So before, after, in the middle, this is not ending. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing. So, yeah, so we should get into it. I think there's lots to talk about. Okay, let's handle a few questions I think are pretty fun. Uh, And by fun, I mean I think I have questions behind these questions, which are exciting. The first one, we have two questions. Carla. She says, first one, random. This is, she has a friend who's, I mean, this is kind of a nuanced <laughs> yeah. question, right? So she has a friend who got right. a vaccine number one, and then she got pregnant. Okay. And now the question is, yeah. does she get vaccine number two? I mean, this is, um, this is a, yeah, talk yeah. about a Good. niche market right now. We're talking about. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, so, this is a subset of the population. Yes. So first off, c- congratulations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to your friend. I think, so the, one of the difficult things about COVID vaccine and pregnancies, we don't have a lot of data, right? We haven't done a lot of, there are studies that are underway making sure they, all the animal studies didn't show any issues in pregnancy. All of our regulatory bodies don't have pregnancy as a contraindication to getting the vaccine. And from a physiologic standpoint, there's not really a strong argument that, so for instance, the mRNA vaccines don't intercalate into our genome and change our genes. And so there's not really a sense that there's a reason why a pregnant person shouldn't get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's couched in the understanding that, sure, we don't have long-term data um, about this. We don't have large study randomized control trials yeah. but there's not hasn't been any real compelling anecdotal evidence in the first wave of folks uh, who got the vaccine some of which were also pregnant yeah. healthcare workers and things mm-hmm. like that who got it and so we haven't been seeing anything but it is sort of a matter of personal discernment i think and decision one thing that i do know is that a pregnancy does put you at risk for more morbidity with a covid infection mm-hmm. and so i think that as this decision is being made you know one of the things is getting covid also could cause problems yeah. uh, blood clots other just uh, respiratory issues, things like that in pregnancy. And I've definitely seen some pretty ill pregnant women in the hospital at various points during the pandemic. And so I think that's really the calculus is getting the sense of getting COVID while you're pregnant is also probably not a good thing. And that has some potential un- untoward effects on the, the mother and sure. child. And so I think it's a very personal decision. Different people are going to have different thresholds around that. The fact that already you've had the first vaccine is kind of an interesting, throws a wrench into it because you have some yeah. immunity from that first dose. And so do you decide that's enough and go with it? I think it's a very, very personal decision, but I don't see anything, any compelling evidence that there's a red flag or that one should not do yeah. that. I don't see any evidence to that effect. Steve, anything to add to that? No, exactly that. I think that it's we're just trying to weigh sort of the like Mark said, the risks of each, and hopefully we'll have less of a risk from COVID going forward. But nevertheless, it's, there have been a lot of pregnant people who have gotten the vaccine so far. I mean, it's pretty mind-boggling how many vaccines have already been given. And again, we're mm-hmm. still lacking that long-term data, but it's like we, we've gathered a lot of information. And so, and like Mark said, we haven't seen any any unusual adverse effects. So, Good. so yeah. Good. My only tip of information for this, because I'm not qualified to answer this question, I, I can only, uh, because of my own personal experience of having, going through a pregnancy, not myself, but via my <laughs> wife, is that if you are prone to morning sickness and you're in the middle of morning sickness and you get the second one that has more symptoms, you may have 24 hours of feeling a little extra icky. So, hey, that's my only thing I can think of right now. That's my, that might be a real, you might want to take that day off from, from work. So that's my counsel. That's my, my, my professional counsel. <laughs> there's, Seems wise. there's another follow-up question here from Carla, which is, I think, fascinating because I didn't even think about it. This is why I love our listeners. They have really cool questions that are insightful. Again, this is about, okay, so Stephen, Mark, we are making available vaccines by May 1st to every adult in the U.S. So potentially, in theory, every adult could be vaccinated, which leaves an enormous population of children left. So Carla's question is, hey, what what happens then? We're not going to see children getting vaccinated until late, probably in the winter. I mean, we'll start with high schoolers maybe in the fall. 
But the little kiddos, my kiddos, four, five, six, maybe not until winter. What's the possibility that like COVID, because it's constantly trying to mutate and it can't find any hosts, it's trying to find the place to populate that it begins to mutate in such a way to start effect- infecting or affecting children way more than it previously did. I mean, that could be a huge fear for so many moms. What's the likelihood of this? And I mean, Mark, do you want to start? You, we, I, I, we talked about this question a little bit off the air and you had some insight before we handed it to Steven. Yeah. Yeah, what I love, so I was going to talk a little bit about the question and then I'll let Stephen actually answer the question because I think that the question itself, embedded in the question is, is an interesting idea, right? And and the word you use is, is COVID going to try to mutate X, Y, Z? And, and I think that it's very easy as we start to think about the sort of the this, you know, evolutionary pressures that are exerted on a virus or something like that to falsely attribute like an intentionality to a virus, right? And and it seems silly when you call it out, but I think it's implicitly the way that we think a lot of how these processes work, that it's like the virus is trying to get a host. And so it's engineering towards something that's going to make it more infective. Well, full disclaimer, it's just full disclaimer quickly. These are moms who have kids, which means all of their little COVID viruses on paper have smiley faces and eyes, right? So you can kind of <laughs> see right. where this That's is going. Right. I mean, my <laughs> my my little coronaviruses <laughs> have all happy faces. So just give a little <laughs> right. bit of extra more cred there, <laughs> right? So a little uh, little personification <laughs> yeah, totally of the virus, yeah. right? And so I think it, it's helpful as we start as we answer those questions to have this sense of okay, there's there are different pressures that are being exerted populationally on a virus that are going to influence the strains that persist and the strains that die out. And so I do think, it, there, so the question itself is, is a really perceptive one and a valid one is, as it loses hosts within the adult population, does that mean that strains or subtypes that preferentially infect children are going to have that pressure, competitive pressure removed and take a little bit more percentage of the, of the, the population. So I think that's, that, that's a super interesting question and just wanting to like, to lead us towards like, how do we start to think about that? I can, a couple things. Number one, I think one of the scenarios that a lot of people have talked about, including Steven's group has been that as SARS-CoV-2 gets through the, the entire population that much of the time in the future, people are going to be exposed to this as children first. And that even perhaps that's the way that all of the coronaviruses that we interact with happened, that they started as a similar pandemic situation. Now they cause a common cold, but in part that's because we've been exposed to them as children before with mild illness. And so I think there's a, there's a reasonable, reasonably plausible thing where, yes, actually, kids are going to keep getting COVID and be exposed to this particular, you know, to SARS-CoV-2, maybe at somewhat preferentially higher rate, but also just because kids get a bunch of viruses, you know. But then I think the question of does that cause severe disease or does that start to cause severe disease in children is sort of a separate question. And and one of the things that could potentially happen is it actually continues to just cause mild disease in children. And then that exerts sort of a protective effect on our global population over the next generation. Okay. And to frame this a little bit more for Stephen, because I think when I read this, it kind of provoked, oh yeah, this is a real question. I think the reason why it provokes such a big, oh, I think this is real, is because going back to when we said, oh my gosh, how did this mutate to begin with? COVID normally doesn't mutate this quickly. It's much more slowly. And now we're seeing these kind of more gradual mutations. And one of the suggestions was, in my mind, hu- humans trying to get a grasp on COVID and getting treatments, which was delaying their healing, which gave them more time for them to replicate. So I'm thinking, oh, we caused it, right? So then I'm, I have that kind of potentially, right? And so now I'm like, okay, could that happen again? Because we're causing it again, because we're only selecting a population to vaccinate. So that's my, that's where I got, my bells went off. And Stephen, you want to speak into that? Yeah. So it's, there's so much good stuff here. This is like one of the areas that I really enjoy thinking about a lot is like the intersection between like population dynamics of infectious disease and then how they actually evolve, because that's, that's the golden ticket right there. As we learn more about that, that's how we figure out really how to help public health in terms of infectious disease. So it's a lot of, one of the things is that, so I do have a lot of sympathy for the, the way of speaking about evolution in sort of personified terms. I mean, we, we as scientists often do that too, despite the fact that we like, there is this recognition that, that it's not actually 
True, but it can be a helpful metaphor in the way that our vocabulary is so structured around telling narratives and telling narratives around actors doing things that it's kind of difficult to communicate. And you can almost sort of subvert the thing that you're trying to communicate by trying to be too precise about it sometimes. And so, but that of course gets you into difficulties where there are these gaps where the metaphor only goes so far and then it stops. And yeah. so that's where there's sort of this like underlying intuition where I know that what I'm speaking about is like, I'm, I'm assigning the virus this activity that it doesn't actually have. And I'm using it to communicate that. And we do that amongst ourselves, even as a community. But then there's sort of this understanding that like, we always have to keep checking ourselves and making sure that we don't get too caught up in that narrative. Because again, like Mark said, it's, it, it only goes so far. So, right. So the taking the first sort of question about SARS-CoV-2 potentially mutating and that changing the way that it interacts with kids, I think there are two levels to, to work on this. And the first is that, again, speaking in terms of the personified virus, viruses want to transmit. They don't necessarily want to kill or cause severe illness. The way that evolution works is that the thing that replicates more gets the advantage. It replicates more, and that's just why you see it more, because it replicates faster. It replicates, and uh, oftentimes, actually, replication and disease are at odds from one another. If you kill your host too quickly, then you can't spread in, in many mm, cases. And yeah. so... That's not a guarantee that viruses will always evolve to be less severe. There are reasons why they can actually evolve to be more severe as well. But generally speaking, those two processes don't necessarily have to be coupled at all. So, so I think that's one thing is that even if it were to evolve to be more infectious in children, that doesn't necessarily that it will evolve to be more severe in children. And in fact, the opposite could happen. Both could happen at the same time where it becomes more infectious, but actually less severe. I think that's something that could very easily happen as well. Now, with the asymmetry, sort of having different populations vaccinated at different rates, it's a really interesting thing. So where my mind usually goes is that, so what we're doing right now is we have some population of adults who are vaccinated and some who are not. And in fact, the selection pressure that we're applying, the thing, basically the filter that we're applying against the virus's transmission is actually happening in, in adults. So the first thing that I expect to happen and something that we've actually been seeing is that the virus will actually evolve to escape immunity in adults, because we have a whole diversity of viruses that are circulating and competing right now. And some of them just happen to have mutations that would make it easier for them to get around the vaccine. Now, prior to the vaccine, that didn't matter because nobody was vaccinated. And so they were equally good at spreading. But now those viruses that happen to have those lucky mutations will be able to get around that immunity. And they'll tend to spread a little bit more quickly. And that's what we're starting to see with some of the variants, for example, that like the, the P1 variant, for example, seems to be able to get around both natural immunity and to some extent vaccine-induced immunity, although it still seems like previous infection probably provides some level of protection against severe disease and illness, which is all good news. It's possible that having kids be unvaccinated and adults be vaccinated, I can think of a scenario in which, so, so the way that, that I would think about this is that, again, maybe, again, there's this whole diversity of viruses circulating, and some of them happen to be more infectious in kids. And those ones maybe spread more easily among kids, but less easily among adults. And since they're just more adults than kids, then those things sort of got outcompeted. And now as we're vaccinating, we might see those ones that are more infectious in kids sort of rise and be a little bit more common. But I, it's harder for me to rationalize that. It's usually I don't think of viruses as sort of having attributes that make them more infectious in a certain age group per se. It all just has to do with our underlying levels of immunity to a large part. Now, disease severity, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but a, a lot of these other things I think have to do with just pre-exposure to the virus. So I, all of that is to say that I think it's it's unlikely that vaccinating adults will lead to either a more transmissible or a more severe variant in kids. It could randomly arise, but I think that those selection pressures that we're putting on are not necessarily pushing the virus in that direction. And like Mark said, I, I agree with that. I think that probably what we're looking towards is a world in which everyone is exposed to SARS-CoV-2 many times by the time they turn 10, 12, in which case they're probably hardly going to notice infection. And by that time, then that will hopefully build up enough underlying immunity that it'll be much like the other coronaviruses that we already know about. Not for sure, but I think that's if I had to put my stake in the ground, that's where I'd put it. Okay, great. Is it fair then to say that you said like it could happen randomly, which means if that was the case, it would happen randomly with, with either with vaccinating adults or without vaccinating. They're like, it's not like thinking intentively, well, 
the adult population has been vaccinated. So we're going to randomly go over here. It just means that's just the, the neutral playing field. Right. Yeah. And we've seen that yeah. before. I mean, early in the pandemic, there was there was a mutation that occurred. And we had some speculation about this back in the spring where there was a mutation. Where, is, it, is it more infectious? It seems like this mutation is taking off. And after seeing it, the calculations that we've been able to run in hindsight says that, yeah, I mean, even though basically everybody was susceptible. We weren't doing anything to mess around with the virus's ability to spread. It still had this random mutation that made it more infectious and allowed it to spread more easily. And that that can just happen. But that's, again, just sort of how viruses behave. And if they find a strategy that allows them to spread more quickly into more people, then that is just going to naturally sort of rise. So, yeah, so I think that there are things that we can, that we do that affect how the virus evolves. But a lot of it also has to do with just if it gets that lucky mutation. So. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. Last question. This one is from Molly, one of our longtime listeners. And I know Mark, you set the state, you kind of mentioned this before we we're talking about getting vaccines. And I think you didn't say it is like absolutely for sure true, but there were suggestions that maybe that if you get vaccinated to maybe don't take a Tylenol or before it's one thing, once you get the symptoms and once you get a fever, yeah, go ahead. But like before you're getting vaccinated to help the vaccine have a stronger hold, maybe just don't take that before preparing for it. So mm-hmm. Molly has a question that she's not slated for a vaccine yet. It's not even up for, but just thinking if she were to be up for it, she just got on some kind of, uh, looks like Bactrim for sinus infection. And I don't know what that is or what it's for. And just, she didn't know in, in something like that case like this, would it be ideal to wait until the 14 days is over? Does it even matter? What would be your stance on this kind of area of what you're taking before you get the vaccine? Yeah. So to just go to your previous point first, just to reiterate, there is some evidence, um, both in animal models and I believe in the pediatric literature, and there's a lot of physiologic plausibility to the sense that when you get a vaccine, you need your immune system to respond to that vaccine. And there are certain, especially the NSAID class of drugs, so ibuprofen and those sorts of related drugs that don't include Tylenol, can actually decrease some of that initial immune response. And so there is some recommendation, even Dr. Fauci has said this and the CDC that don't pre-treat and don't, especially with ibuprofen or, you know, related drugs. After you get the vaccine, if you're having symptoms, it's generally thought of okay. And I would recommend using acetaminophen at that point uh, if, if you need, if you're having fevers, rigors, things like that, just for symptom control. And in some ways, it makes sense to just physiologically thinking your immune system has already responded because that's why you feel terrible. Yeah. And so then it's okay um, to start to tamp that down a little bit. And now the second phase where you're getting the, the antigen presented to your memory cells and things like that is is already underway. And so so that still, that still holds. Not recommended to pre-treat if you're having symptoms afterwards, consider Tylenol uh, or acetaminophen. The other question, again, I wouldn't I don't want to give you know any specific medical sure. advice at all. And so I think the the boilerplate answer is make sure you chat with your physician and, and have an understanding of kind of what's going on. In general, the drug-drug interactions for things like our routine antibiotics, like the 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 one that you mentioned, is not thought to change the efficacy of the vaccine. And so as long as from a global health perspective, you're doing okay, I wouldn't worry too much about that. But I would also, of course, talk to your local doc and make sure that there's no other contraindications to getting the, the second dose of the vaccine. Great. Thanks so much. Hey, I just saw on here, we got a, we had somebody to say they'll leave a review. Don't know who it is, <laughs> <clears throat> but whoever you are, thanks, thanks so that much. much it's like when an anonymous person just says, I'll leave a review, I realize I, I really must have come off really desperate. Thank you to whoever you are. I really appreciate it. Those who are watching live. They didn't say it would be a positive review. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that is really true. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. We follow up the, the Matt of living the real.com and please pr- present the draft of your review first. I greatly appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> I will uh, edit it and then send it back. Okay, so let's get into some of the stuff. Uh, Stephen, I want to throw this back to you just uh, again, because Brazil is getting hit pretty intensely and uh, hospitals are just getting to the breaking point. And again, I want to put all this into one question. So you have you have Brazil kind of hitting a breaking point. You have now this information coming out that Europe flatlined, right? Kind of plateaued out, not flatlined, but plateaued out before they started having a surge, Right. right. We've been hearing from Dr. Fauci that we are plateauing. 
We had a tendency to follow Brazil. And then you have AKA what I just now learned is Dr. Doom, Dr. Osterholm, which I, that's, I guess, a nickname for him. <laughs> so Dr. Doom, right? He, he's, he's really pushing on this with a lot of gas. And he's, and he's even saying, quote, like he's willing to risk his entire career on this, that if he's wrong, he, he realizes that he could be a washed up epidemiologist. I doubt that's going to be the case, <laughs> but, that, but, but he's really, to, he's willing to really put a lot of effort. So coming back to you, Stephen, here's Brazil. We're seeing a plateau. We've got Dr. Doom coming out saying this is really serious. Uh, and we're just now having all these states relinquish all these protections. This is becoming the perfect storm. Hey, it's spring break. By the way, FYI, I want to give kudos to the University of Colorado Boulder because I didn't have the foresight to realize, I don't know why they did this, but back in the fall, they, they completely removed spring break. There's no spring break. They have two health days, mental health days, and that's it, right? Sprinkled in way different months. So you can't like, and I kept thinking, why on earth would you do that? It makes no sense. I thought maybe it's just because the shortened, I'm like, oh, you were smart because you don't want them going places to the beach in Florida. Yeah, right. And like brilliant, mm -hmm. but other universities haven't followed suit, right? There is spring break in a lot of places. Steven, going back to you, where, where are we at right now with Dr. Osterholm in these kind of cases? Oh boy. Yeah. So I wonder if people ever <laughs> think about me as Dr. Doom. <laughs> no, but I think, I mean, like I said, I, there are, I think we need to be watching what's happening in other countries really closely because as we've seen way back in the beginning, we had the example of Italy, for example. And the big question at the time was like, will yeah. we become like Italy? And I mean, the answer was yes, in spades and then some, you know, <laughs> and in different ways. And so, so I think that, you know, it's, there are lessons that other countries can provide that I think we really need to, to pay close attention to. Meanwhile, paying close attention to the distinctions as well. So similarities, we have a lot of variants circulating here in the United States. In some states, the B117 variant, which is the UK variant, has surpassed half of all cases that are being tested that are being sequenced, which is a very high proportion. And as soon as B117 tipped past that threshold in many places in Europe, that's where they really started to see surges in infection. Brazil, they have different sort of combinations of variants circulating there. They're, but nevertheless, there seems to be a surge that's being partially driven by variants, partially driven by opening up. Their, their climate is very different than ours as well. And so they've just sort of seen a different set of dynamics. They've, you know, they also currently the, the, the national administration is again, really downplaying the severity of COVID, which makes it really difficult to present a unified front. It's been very many yeah, people have been really ridiculed for getting the vaccine by by very high-ranking members in the government. And so there's there's a lot of sort of confusion there as well that is a sort of feeding the fire so to speak. Now, so again, here here we are in the United States where we have we're seeing surges in Europe. Now, we're a little bit further along in the year. We're a little mm -hmm. bit closer to summer, which is helpful. We've had frankly quite a bit more spread in many places. So levels of natural immunity in some communities are very high, certainly not all. But rates of vaccination are pretty high. Now Now that the, our vaccination rates have been really steadily increasing, we're among the more vaccinated countries in the world, even though we still have a very long way to go. And so all of this is sort of fighting together. And so, so what we've seen epidemiologically is that we saw this really sharp decline in cases across the United States. And then it just sort of like, there's this like remarkable, just sort of it, like it stops and yeah. it it sort of plateaus and it's still going down, but it's almost, I, I heard another epidemiologist describe this as sort of like, it was like this receding tide. And then all of a sudden you're seeing the rocks at the bottom where it's like these persistent communities, clusters of transmission that are still going and are, and are really hard to, to get control of because they're moving and there's variants and these kinds of things. So I, I expect there to be more spread. I mean, I think that there's going to be, uh, a long tail of infection, we might well see a surge. I think that again, it's going to look very different from place to place as as this has already. So I think that some states and some communities will almost definitely see a surge from the variants, but some won't. And we'll get to the summer and cases will probably start to go down. We just don't know where those are going to be yet. And so I think that my my outlook is probably a little bit more hopeful than Dr. Osterholm's. And, and again, I think that that has to do with the fact that some of the things that are working in the favor of spread in the United States, but, but I'm prepared to be surprised. Okay. I'm feeling the same way. I'm hoping, I mean, again, I'm not qualified, but I, I know just like everything in my body. And I feel like this is, this is not going to be like whatever it is. It's not going to be like it was in, in, in December or January that, oh. I mean, gosh, we just saw like Friday, was it like 3.5 million doses were given out in one day. I mean, we're just, this is, 
this is phenomenal. This yeah. is really helpful. Really yeah. helpful. Yeah. Mark, I'm going to throw it to you quickly because I know that you may have to leave around 930 or so. And before I get in the vaccine, mm -hmm. I know I'm dropping this on you right now. Uh, so I don't know if you, but uh -oh. we haven't <laughs> talked about treatments in a long time. And I want to get your update on what your experience on treatments, because everything's vaccination, right? Right now. That's, but, but there's yeah, treatments yeah. still going on. And I saw two big things mm -hmm. show up on the news. I don't know if you even heard of this. It was in the notes. Mm -hmm. There's some Ellie Lilly's combo therapy for COVID-19 cut serious illness and death in large studies. It said like up to 80%. I don't know if you were even aware of this, that this is something that's on your radar at the hospital. And then the other thing is this uh, new coronavirus drug set to be 80, 80 times more potent. I don't know what that means. than the antibody drug Trump was given, it was some GlaxoSmithKline something for, I don't know what it was for, but these two things came up in the news recently. Didn't know first A, what's treatment like in the hospital and are, have these two things sort of been surfacing discussion or treatment in your hospital? Yeah, good, great questions. So my understanding, I, is this the Eli Lilly combo? Is that an it's an, an another antibody combo? Yes, Stephen, do you know? This? I think. I think. Yeah, I don't okay. know much about it. Yeah, I don't. So I don't. I haven't looked at the study myself okay. yet. I'll have to look at it. I think when I think about these, often these antibody drugs are used and are most effective really early in the course of illness. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are often things that are that are best used kind of initially after somebody presents uh, before they get super sick. And a lot of times in the hospital, we see folks days into illness, into weeks into illness, and start to see sort of that peak of symptoms mm -hmm. later on in their illness course, after which time the virus is already replicated is kind of run rampant through the body. And it's at that point that we want to address the hyperinflammatory mm -hmm. response more so. And so, yeah, I do think that the, I'm interested, I'll have to look at the study before I comment sure. officially about, about that. I think it's good. I think it's interesting. I, my, my overall feeling is that these sort of therapeutics are really important and great. It's really got to be our bread and butter prevention and, yeah. and just a sense of like, how do we do prudent social distancing let's get the vaccine uptake and and worry about those things because again overemphasizing therapeutics i think actually can can be counterproductive in a global societal sense as we deal with something like a pandemic we want to get to a scenario in which we're able to engage with our our communities and our neighbors and our friends and families again and and i think that the best chance of that is going to be through these things that we've been emphasizing yeah. all along. From a therapeutic standpoint on the, in the hospital, we're still using a lot of dexamethasone. We we use remdesivir at our institution. Though again, the, the data on that in terms of its mortality benefit and, and all of those things, I, there's there's room to to have a conversation about sort of the, the efficacy there, but that is pretty common practice You know, right now where I'm working is both dexamethasone and remdesivir for the COVID patients. Okay. And I think that's kind of that's where yeah. we're at. And it's, it's, again, it's one of those strange diseases where it's really a lot of very attentive supportive care, really high quality nursing cares that are one of the things that helps these patients the most rather than a wonder drug. Yeah, yep. All the more reason why you don't want hospitals overrun because that 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 part it sort of gets chipped away the first thing is chipped away when you start getting overloaded that's right. right so that's right yep, yep. time and attention mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah great thanks thanks mark let's see here let's get into the vaccine i want to set the stage for this the reason why now i know we're 36 minutes in and we're just now talking formally about the vaccine we'll go as long as we can here before we have to head out i want to set the stage so this is the stage by which i want to enter into it Initially, there was just Pfizer, there was Moderna, there was a lot of excitement. And then, and then Johnson Johnson came on the scene, and that made life complicated. And so there was this initial reaction towards, oh my gosh, Pfizer, Moderna is better. Stay for don't do Johnson Johnson. Get in quickly, or you're going to lose out your time. And then you start seeing news outlets being presented about how, no, no, Johnson Johnson's just as good. Any, 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 any vaccine's a great vaccine. And so, I feel like they sweep, they kind of went the other way and and kind of glossed over the nuances. And now we're kind of finding the center balance of, okay, vaccines are good, but they're nuanced. They're different. They have different advantages. And as we roll this out further, they're going to have more. The reason why I bring this up is because it reminds me of the complications of the mask, right? Where early on it was, don't wear a mask. Now, again, it's complicated. We ex we explained this. That the part of the reason why is because we were we were trying to say that, no, the mask only protects you the one who's wearing it and, and it's complicated, blah, blah, blah. And we realized, oh no, asymptomatic transmission, all this kind of stuff. So then mass became a popular reality, but there was a sense of, did you 
tell us not to wear masks because you wanted to save them for the hospital, right? There was another alternative motive, right? It was, it was a complicated motive. And so is the vaccine another kind of complicated motive because we just want to get people vaccinated. So let's just make it sound really, really good. And it's not really maybe as good, or maybe it is. I don't know. But I want to start with just kind of where are we at with the vaccines? I think right now we can just safely say for the U.S. anyway, I know I'm sorry for those people overseas. There's, there's many other ones being populated around here, but uh, Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson. Can we first give it like a small understanding of the difference? Because from what I gather also from an article I read, Johnson and Johnson might've been the only one among most of the vaccines that studied a particular way by which it was effective that other ones didn't. So at first I thought, all vaccines are just different in their measurements, but it sounds like Johnson and Johnson is the outlier in the way they try to measure things, which is making things a little more complicated to compare apples to apples. Steven, start with you. Is that correct? And where are we at with the, these, these treatments? Yeah. So you're exactly right. I mean, I think that it's really important to, you know, just be totally upfront about all of these things. Right. And I think the I think it's very clear to many, you know, many of the epidemiologists, at least that I know, that like it's it's both ineffective and also just like wrong to like mislead people. <laughs> That's like not <laughs> what we're in the business of doing, yeah, um, no. because not only it's it's just it's just wrong, but then also it's it never it never works out, right? Like you, it's just it, it's yeah. it's a poor strategy, and it's just not something that that you want to do anyway. And so I think that certainly like uh, messages can be emphasized incorrectly or miscommunicated or whatever, all of these things. But I think really what I want to try to do is speak as clearly as I can about what I know to be the case about these different vaccines. So the the vaccines differ. They differ in how they work, where the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have very similar modes of action, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is somewhat different. And I think that part of that is reflected I mean, in the, in the numbers that we see for the efficacy of the Pfizer and Moderna. I mean, they're like just right in lockstep. Like they're very, very yeah. similar vaccines in terms of, of the, the report rates of efficacy, whereas Johnson & Johnson is 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 different. It, so it, it has, first, a lower baseline efficacy, which is the the ability of it to stop symptoms altogether, basically. So so that's one thing. And and the but the trials measured them in slightly different ways. Most importantly, they measured them in different populations at different times as well. Yeah. And so and so it does get difficult to totally compare. You have this number of efficacy, but it's also you're comparing different populations with different underlying, there were different variants spreading at, at the time and different sorts of amount of spread as well. And all of this can sort of affect the, the the certainty in that final number that you report. So all of that said, I mean, I think that it's what it seems to be the case for me is that is that it, I, I do think that probably the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has a lower efficacy than the five and the Moderna vaccines at preventing symptoms of any sort. The ability of the three vaccines to prevent severe illness and particularly hospitalization and death is extremely high. And is so with these numbers, th those events are, are rare. They're relatively yeah. rare compared to infections. And when you're doing statistics, it's really difficult to get very good estimates of very rare events. And in all three vaccines, those events are rare enough that the efficacy of all three is basically overlapping the estimates of the efficacy of the three. So there's, as far as we can tell, they're equally efficacious in terms of present, preventing hospitalizations and deaths. And part of that is because there's still a, a little bit of uncertainty about that because those numbers are relatively small compared to the other ones. But the important thing is that even though the numbers are small and though they overlap between the three, Three, the protection is very high amongst the three of them. It is very different than the non-vaccinated population for sure. And we know that for sure in all three cases. And, and that's ultimately why they were given this emergency use approval. And so I think that's that's the main thing to emphasize is that when, when we're talking about that these vaccines are all very good, they're, they're good at preventing hospitalization and death, which are, are really the things that we're most after trying to prevent. Increasing evidence suggests that they're actually pretty good at preventing transmission too, which is a huge bonus. And so I think that there's very good reason to be confident in all three, even though there might be differences in, in, in their individual efficacy. So, 
The last thing is that, of course, individuals are also going to have a lot of variation in their immune response. And with Pfizer and Moderna, there's 5% of people who may still get infected and show symptoms yeah. after the fact, right? And so it's it's impossible to predict like what my response is. Perhaps my response to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine would be better than my response yeah. to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. And we're, we're playing probabilities here all over the place, but... yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of difficult to suss any of this out, but I think, and that's, that's why with all of this complexity, usually the answer is that we, and I agree with this, is that we have three very good vaccines. It makes a lot of sense to get the one that is available when you're ready to get the vaccine, because they seem to be comparable, at least in terms of preventing the most severe outcomes. And they all seem to be doing a pretty good job so far of preventing infection as well. So that's, that's sort of the bottom line. And that's how it gets distilled into that single message from all of this complexity. Go ahead. Yeah, I like that. I, just to underscore that, the sense of don't let's not let the microscopic optimization question out overshadow the macroscopic mm-hmm. optimization. So the micro is which of the vaccines, when and how, and, and at what interval, and that sort of thing. But the big picture is we have three very efficacious vaccines, and on a population level, this is very, very important in terms of where we're at in the overall picture of the pandemic. So looking to that bigger question, I think is, is the key. Great. And there's a nuance though, because not to throw a wrench into things, but then you have Pfizer coming out saying that, Hey, that's what it showed that it's effective across all all age demographics, even the elderly equally as effective. Right. So then in my mind, I'm like, I want my mother-in-law, if I can get her, I want her to get the Pfizer one because at least that's shown to be equally across demographics. And this is where I think some of the nuances, and I know that, like you said, it's it's still complicated because it, it, it may be the case right now, but six months from now, we might find that all of them are equally because I just heard that because these are rolling out at different times, then we can't treat them as being equal in their statistics. And that, so now we have to do another round of study, which we put all of them together and do a, a trial all at the same time in the same locations for the same. Now we're getting a similar apple to apple comparison, but that's not going to be for, I don't even know. And then more vaccines get rolled out and we can add them to the flame. Right. So this right. is, and I'm just, yeah. And I'm just not sure that the variability between these three particular vaccines matters that okay. much to be yeah. honest with you. I, and I don't know, Stephen, if you want to add, it maybe you may disagree, but I just, I, even if, we did that kind of head-to-head study. I'm not. I, I'm just not convinced with the data that we have that it really is going to be meaningfully different. And so I think again, it's it, this is more a question of kind of participating in the rollout of the vaccines in general and making that decision for yourself, holding together all of the evidence and lack of evidence that we have, making a good decision that's very personal. But at the same time, I think it's 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 more a question of to vaccinate or not to vaccinate rather than. Which of the three is is my kind of my take on that? Yeah. Stephen, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay, great. I want to frame this quickly because we talked about efficacy. I think there's three tiers of this, right? There's efficacy, but then there's safety. And then as Mark, you were talking about before we got on, there's asymptomatic transmission, right? These three areas are all important areas to talk about. Efficacy is one. In my subdomain, in my personal life, in my family, oftentimes it is less efficacy and more about the question of safety. Now, I know this is a little more difficult. I know we had a episode about this. And I want to bring in right now that that whole email I showed you guys from this naturopath that we have dealt with in the past that kind of helped to her her subscribers to get an understand and grasp of of the vaccine, the pros and cons. And that I think as we talked off the the recording, that there was some misleading stuff in that in that email because either A, like you said, that even just the language itself was not precise enough to be able to convey the real message. And then even some of the stuff, the the side effects, like the Gullian, the, I don't even want to say Gillian Bears. I don't know how to say it. I'm not French. Guillain, Guillain Bray. Guillain Bray. So I completely, I got the, yeah. the guh and the, and the buh. <laughs> so that was, I nailed it. That's I nailed good. it. That's good. You got to start, you got to start with the hard consonants. <laughs> yeah. That's what. I, so I says a framework because the question is safety and her principal thing was, well, kind of safety, but she mentioned a lot of things that were kind of like, okay, is that really true? You talked about how the vaccine is just, once you get it, you're just a silent spreader, which that leads to the second the third big question of asymptomatic spread. So let's start with that. So she talks about hey, that mm-hmm. if you get the vaccine, the problem is that you're just a silent spreader. 
Is that an accurate assessment of where we're at with the science when it comes to the vaccine, Stephen? No. I mean, thankfully, we the, for a while, we were unsure of the extent to which the vaccines might re- reduce transmission. And so the, the recommendation was basically we have these high numbers of efficacy, but we don't yet know how much it prevents transmission or really if it does, although there was good reason to believe that it did, but we weren't sure by how much. Those numbers are are, are starting to come in and, and they do seem to be pretty high. They're, they are seem to be pretty good at blocking asymptomatic transmission, which is measured by basically doing weekly swabs of people who have gotten the vaccine versus those who haven't and measuring the rates of infection in those two groups. That also, there's Again, all three vaccines seem to be pretty protective against that as well, hovering between 60 and 80 percent is, is is what seems to be the case, at least for the Moderna and Pfizer ones. So that's good. I, I, I don't think yeah. that by vaccinating people, we're sort of introducing this huge pool of, of asymptomatic silent spreaders. Great. And th- th- this goes to my other question then. So this is related. So I was thinking in my head yesterday about this idea of the the idea of asymptomatic spread. And it was still a question. We don't know. Once you get the vaccine, could you spread it? And I kind of allowed that question just to stay in my head as like a legit question. Question. And then after a while, I'm like, wait a minute. For me, this is not a legit question. Granted, I'm not a scientist. I know nothing. This is just pure intuition. But we've talked about in the past this idea of the Pareto principle and how it actually was pertaining to the spread. We realized that there were these super spreaders and we explained why we don't actually pigeonhole them, that we talk about the circumstance instead of the actual person. Uh, I can go back to a previous episode to talk about that and that how it's 20% really contribute to 80% of the spread. So these 20% are, are having extra amount of viral load that's actually causing a lot of spread. So I'm thinking, okay, you talked about this before, Stephen, that how like the norovirus, it takes one, I think that's the right one, like it takes one particle maybe on average. Now, granted, this is, this is getting art and science blended together, right? So roughly one particle to infect someone. And then you have something like COVID, which is much a higher degree of particles. So 100-ish or something like that, right? The current. So it's all about not just a particle, but the amount that's being spread and you get a vaccine, you're clearly reducing the amount by which you're going to probably be replicating. That's the right. whole point of the vaccine. So even if you do it by half, that 20%, man, we're, we're nailing right the spread of the virus. So in my mind, this is like a no-brainer, just logic of how COVID works. Am I off on this? But is this? Are we going to see even higher numbers probably intuitively once we kind of get down further down the road, do you expect? I, I sure hope so. Yeah, we've we've done a little bit of modeling around this. It's it's hard to pin it down enough to really get clear numbers. But but you're right. The super spreading is probably most likely when you have when you're producing a lot of virus. And and so if the vaccine reduces that, we have these average reductions in number of transmissions or number of infections. But like you said, the vaccine is probably chopping off that tail, which is going to have a lot more effect on the overall spread in the population. So even if a single person might still spread on average to a couple of others, if we if we can effectively eliminate super spreading events or cut the size of those in a half or a quarter, that's going to play a huge, huge, huge role in transmission overall. So again, that's, that's one of the, the little Easter eggs that's hidden in the, in the, (laughs) the efficacy numbers. So, yeah. Okay, great. And Mark, I want to throw it back to you on this, 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 because I know I don't want to get into details of this, but it's, it's symbolic gesture of this. When this email talked about, I'm going to call it GB, right? The, that's what for sure the whatever right <laughs> GB. Is, I, I'm yeah. so hip. Yeah. I'm so cool. I call all medical things just by yeah. their by their their letters. Right. So yeah. you take GB for example, right? And this yeah. idea yeah. where she kind of she, right. she kind of like, <laughs> just just for the sake of our, our listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. Yeah, not, not Great Britain. Now, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Thank you. Not Great Britain. But you take this, right? And she kind of exposed this, which I thought it was really interesting. She, she talked about how it increases the of getting this from the vaccine, mm-hmm. but then it, but then explains mm-hmm. that it's not the vaccine, which is, it feels like it's a little bit misleading, and then that it's just the antibodies from the vaccine, but it's not just the antibodies from the mm-hmm. vaccine. It's the antibodies from just COVID in general. So it doesn't matter whether you get mm-hmm. the vaccine. So this is a yeah. point. But what what is this about? And does this really have any impact on the discussion of the vaccine? No, I mean, I think so. A couple of things. Yeah, the the way that I read that that section was largely I think I think that there there were sections of this that were really, you know, precise yeah. and well intentioned. Sure. And I do think that the way that I read it was yes, there is a risk of Guillain-Barre associated with vaccination and that also, there is a potential risk of Guillain-Barre coming from natural infection and that it's just getting the vaccine, that that alone is not a reason to not get the vaccine. That's how I read yeah. it. And I'd say that's a pretty reasonable yeah. gloss that we, 
Guillain-Barre is a neurologic condition that has autoimmune roots and it can be triggered by vaccination. We've seen that before with including the influenza vaccine Mm -hmm. and also can be triggered by infection with the virus uh, and the immune response from from a virus. And so I think in some ways I found that actually to be a helpful helpful expl- explanation yeah. of what one of the things that may cause people to be more hesitant. Again, as we go back to it, there are also risks of just getting yeah. the virus itself. And that may level the playing field a little bit in terms of the risk-benefit calculation of should I get the vaccine or not. It's very different from saying, is the difference just getting the vaccine and never getting infected, that that sets your risk yep. a little bit differently. Yep. No, good. And that's the reason why I to bring this up. So I think this is a great illustration of the complexity of the situation where it's not just a black or white switch, but that, mm-hmm. that by taking the vaccine or not taking the vaccine. But I think this is encouraging because this is a naturopath who does want to look and explore at the possible side effects and safety. And this was probably one of the biggest ones by which it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. So going back to the question of safety for all those people out there who uh, are wanting, if it's safe, is there anything currently out there by which we're seeing that show that it on any level that it's not safe anywhere at this point in time. Stephen, has there been anything surface? I mean, from what I've read, there's the rare things, but there's nothing that's really shown up on the radar to show that, that there's anything to be concerned about. Yeah, that's I mean, that's my reading of it. It seems to be as safe as any of the other vaccines that we have available, yeah. which okay. is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know much to say about that. It's hard because there's really not much to, to talk about because everything that's come up so far has been good news besides the side effects. I know there's been some on the, on the margin of things, some, some really strong reactions, but it's so rare fits into the general population of, of what you would do if you studied. So I'm really in the end, hopefully encouraging that we all just try to take part of this. And I know the one thing I, I that the nuance to this is what Mark and Steven really did a great job uh, framing back in, gosh, the spring and the summer that in this email, from the naturopath, it was really a question of here's all the situations, here's all the nuances, here's where we're at. Now you need to make the best information. You need to make the decision, the best decision for yourself and your health, right? Your personal health. And that's kind of where it landed. And then she can offer ways by which to navigate that terrain. But then Mark and Steven, you've really opened my eyes because that's the way I have seen it. But it's, it's a much bigger perspective. It's not just, okay, here are some side effects. Oh, I don't know if I want those side effects. You know what? It's just, I don't think I, I want to do it. Great. But there's a bigger picture because it, because it takes a much bigger population to be able to bring safety to other people. And that needs to be a huge consideration and a fever for two or three hours or a headache or some swelling or some tingling of fingers may be worth it for the greater cause, not just for yourself, but what it gives to the community as well. And it would keep that in consideration. Great. I think, and I think we nailed it. We talked about the efficacy and that that was really encouraging, Stephen, by the way, just talking about how when it comes to hospitalization, that they're really kind of on par with each other. And that's encouraging to anyone who's considering this fact, the vaccine, that we talk about its safety and that really there's nothing to be concerned about. There's nothing on the radar. And then the great news about asymptomatic transmission. And now, my last question before we head out and leave, is that across the board, you think, asymptomatic transmission? I know Moderna and Pfizer have been out for longer, so they're, but do we expect, do we think that that might be similar intensity of prevention with something like Johnson and Johnson and other vaccines that are coming out? Yeah, we're, we're still, still getting the data in, but I, I think yeah. so. There's going to be some variation for sure. Um, sure. but yeah. Okay. But again, Great. like it, it doesn't have to be perfect. And then you get these population effects that really help a ton. So. Great. Okay. Well, we're going to end on this. I just saw that the CDC came out with good news about vaccines, about how you can hang out with people, with other people that have the vaccine, or you can hang out with someone, somebody else who doesn't have the vaccine with one household, and that's it. That's not at high risk. You know, I know that some scientists are kind of a little bit leery about that particular prescription. That's the nuance, but that's the CDC provided as a helpful, kind of hopeful reality for those who are getting the vaccine. That's it. I, w- I hope... You guys have a wonderful week. If you want to get in touch with Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R, that's on Twitter, and check out his list. It's awesome. You can follow it as well as you want to get a hold of us, Matt at livingthereal.com. Check out my podcast, Living the Real, about the six or seven things that I've learned so far that are still unraveling. One, which has hit me like a ton of bricks, and it scares the heck out of me. Okay, for the, that's it for this week. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you all next week. Take care, and bye-bye.